0: just introduce yourself so that the public will understand who you are and what you do and what brings you to the table
1: today. Thank you very much, moderator. I am honored this afternoon to join a distinguished team to come together and discuss this very, very important topic. As you have said, my name is David Deritu and I work at IPWA as the Director of Management and Legal Services. You rightly pointed out that before I joined Ipa about three years ago, I used to be a prosecutor as a senior assistant director of public prosecutions. Before that, of course, I practiced law and uh, my major area of interest, uh, as you may guess, is uh, generally criminal law. I am very passionate about criminal law and uh, justice in general. But um, from where now I stand, by now most Kenyans are aware of AIPWA, AIPWA or Independent uh, Policing Oversight Authority, it's a state uh, or public body that was formed in 2011 for the intention and purpose of uh, looking into police misconduct, and particularly where that misconduct amounts to criminal activity. And therefore, our work is to investigate that and take the appropriate action by recommending to the DPP if there is a prosecutable case. And also recommending to National Police Service Commission, uh, Inspector General, Internal Affairs Unit, where we feel that probably the action that should be taken is administrative. Uh, of course, we have had our challenges as we shall go along. Of course, we shall enumerate them. But uh, for a start, uh, I think this is uh, an option moment. And I thank the uh, organisers of this uh, seminar that uh, they have found it fit that this topic be discussed now, particularly with the challenges that we have come across in uh, enforcing the curfew by the National Police Service during this period of uh, COVID-19. I know uh, that is a very, very uh, interesting topic, uh, uh, subtopic that we will come up, but uh, Monday later, from where I stand, I'm ready to do the best that we can. Thank you very much.
0: Well, oh, thank you. And you'll be uh, very vital because you know both ends of things. You understand the oversight, but you also understand what it is like at the prosecution table and what it is that would be so helpful within this Coroner's Act for the people in the ODPP. We will next have Miss Emily Trier from the Attorney General's Office kindly take the floor and let us know where it is you plug in to the topic today.
2: Thank you so much, Chair, for this um, invitation, opportunity to participate in this forum, to make my contributions to this very, very important topic. As you've heard, my name is Emily Chua. I'm the Director of Legal Affairs at the Office of the Attorney General and Department of Justice. uh, The AG, maybe maybe many of you know, apart from being a legal advisor, is also in charge of reporting on our regional and international human rights obligations to both the international treaties and the regional that we have ratified. We also are involved in formulating policy on human rights. I'm here to represent the AG and is very, very particularly grateful for this opportunity. He is very keen on the establishment of this office of the National Corona Service because it provides an independent framework for the investigation of, uh, of some of the suspicious killings that have been happening in Kenya, which has become a great matter of concern to him, not only to him, to the public, to the parliament and to other human rights advocates. And so I'm very, very grateful to be here, to be able to perhaps share with you some of the challenges that we've had with regard to the establishment of the coroners. And and I will not discuss only the challenges, but I'll also give the steps we've taken to to try and somehow or address these challenges. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Thank you. You already foretold what kind of questions you're going to get, so I know you're well prepared. And thank you so much for that. Dr. Duor, we hear a lot about you and your big role as a government pathologist. Uh, Would you like to introduce yourself and break it down a little bit for us, what you do and why you are part of the panel today?
1: Okay, I'm Dr. Duor Johansson. I'm a forensic pathologist. I'm also a doctor. I head the division called Forensic and Pathology Services at the Ministry of Health. And uh, my main duty is uh, doing autopsies, presenting a my reports in court as an expert witness, also investigate uh, deaths uh, which are suspicious, deaths which are homicide accidents, and also we usually partake to work with other stakeholders, police, IMLO, IPOWA, in uh, in all this that we do. And uh, of course I'm here because uh, of uh, the issue of the uh, National Service Act, it's uh, a great question, concern to all of us, and uh, we know that it will uh, be able to improve uh, on the service we are doing. We will try our best, but we are sure that we will be able to improve in our service. Thank you very much. Oh,
0: thank you. Thank you for coming. And we have then Mr. Karaoke Karanja.
3: Thank you, Chair. As you've just correctly said, I'm karaoke Karanja. I'm an advocate of the High Court of Kenya. I'm a practitioner. I practice law in the name and style of karaoke Karanja and Company
1: Advocates. Previously, I have worked with International Justice Mission for the last, uh, for eight years as a legal assistant uh, in the Kenya office, and so have interacted with the kind of cases that we're going to discuss today, and which falls under the Coroner's Act.
3: And with that experience, and uh, as a practitioner, I'm going to share my experiences and uh, what uh, how cases have been going in court, and how this uh, lack of
1: this uh, implementation has affected cases and justice.
0: Thank you very much. Do we have Njoki in? Yes, I am. Okay, wonderful. I gave a brief just about who you are, what you do, but this is time for you to tell the public, in your own words, why
3: it is you are part of this panel and what you will offer. Um, My name is Njoki Gashanja from Gedurai Social Justice Center. I also sit at the Social Justice Center's working group and the steering committee. Um, the Social Justice uh, Centers is actually a movement of, uh, is a network of human rights defenders, mostly uh, from the informal settlements. And um, uh, the, the reason why I'm here is because, here at the grassroots, as a social justice movement, we advocate for social justice and we seek legal redress when we document these cases. And one of, one of our biggest campaigns has been extrajudicial killings. And whenever we are pursuing these cases, uh, one of the biggest challenges has been evidence or uh, just the preservation of crime scenes or uh, evidence being tampered with and especially because most of the perpetrators that we deal with are police officers. So um, the, the, the Coronas Act is actually a, a subject that is very close to our hearts because we see it as something that will come and change um, the, di- the dynamics and uh, see most of these cases actually get justice. Yes, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be part of this conversation.
0: Thank you very much. And it sounds to me, just from the personal introductions, that every single person sees the role that this act will actually serve. They see what the benefits would be. And so what we are going to now kick off is an understanding of what has happened to the implementation. Why did it even come to the forefront? What made this important? And if all implementation has not been done for the last three years, moving forward, where can we go? So to start us off with the history, and just giving us some kind of memory, institutional memory to this act. I will have you, Dr. Brian Bichanga, just take us through, because IMLU was a key participant right from the start. What was this act about? Why was it set up? And what really informed its conceptualization? So you can have your 10 minutes on the floor, Dr. Bichanga, and you can help us just really understand what triggered the drafting of this bill and how the journey has been. Karibu. Uh, thank
4: you very much, uh, everyone who has invited, everyone who is present. So today we wear two hats. Apart from the IMNU role, I also am secretary to the Kenya Medical Association Human Rights Committee. So that yeah. can also be, I represent That's also, I share, I share as well their, their views.
0: Wonderful.
4: And, and so the implementation of, of this crucial law uh, was initially meant to solve mysterious deaths in Kenya, uh, but and now it's three years after it was signed into law, and the country is still grappling with mysterious deaths, uh, deaths as 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 a result of police action and deaths in custody, as the government and also the human rights organisation push for the law to come into effect. So the law generally provides for the establishment of the office of the coroner general, who. Among, among many things is tasked with investigating violent, sudden and suspicious deaths. The office is intended to provide complementary forensic medical science services to police investigations involving dead bodies and also crime scene management. This has been, uh, there has been no standard way of, of managing crime scenes, and uh, until now, with this law, it seeks to improve that. But even after the President sent this into law in 2017, there have still been very many mysterious deaths that have been recorded. And that are still currently being investigated by the police. Dr. Adodo will, will bear testimony. Now, it's interesting that we have we have lawyers today, and uh, and and lo- with our interaction with lawyers, there has been and maybe they can clarify this when when, when the turn comes to speak. But there has been a a, a really division on where the minister, the office exactly of the coroner general should fall. Uh, some have pointed that it should fall at the Ministry of Health. while others believe that. It should, because it's of an investigative role, then it should be under the Ministry of Interior and Connection of National Government. But the, because of the nature of the work uh, the, coroner, the NCS does, we, we, we see more relationship with it and the Ministry of Health, but that is subject to discussion as well with, with everyone else who is here. But that, it looks more to be to be drawn towards the Ministry of Health. Uh, if you if look through the Act on Section 868, it provides for the establishment of the National Coroner's Council. This is what will now oversee the function of the, the coroner service. And this, the council includes a few members who are, are namely the Principal Secretary of Justice, the IG, the Principal Secretary of Health Services. But then also the, the interesting thing is that the, the act was, talks about the Ministry of Justice and uh, our Honourable Representative from the Office of the Attorney General will, will let us know more about this Ministry of Justice and and speak more about it, I, I, I presume. But ever since, even with this law which is, which is in place, uh, there have been innumerable deaths that have been reported in Kenya. Many remain unresolved. Interested groups are made to rely on police reports, which have taken ages uh, and sometimes have, have been questionable. Uh, the establishment of, of this service will address this long-standing challenge, especially in a situation where most of the reportable deaths happen in police custody. For instance, uh, I will quote: the act provides that a police officer or any person who is present at the time of death or who finds a dead body shall, in addition to reporting the dead, the death under this act or any other written law, preserve the scene of crime until the coroner or a member of the service presents himself or herself at the scene. That's section 39 of the act. This provision addresses the current gap where instances where the police execute suspects uh, or suspects die in police custody and the same police officer who is responsible for these deaths or in whose custody persons died, removes the body and deposits the body into the mugs and fills the P23 form, indicating the circumstances of death. In most cases, this provides for the police an opportunity for interfering with the crime scene, an opportunity for them to interfere with forensic evidence, an opportunity for them to protect themselves as well as their colleagues. So this act has detailed the legal requirements of the conduct of forensic examination of death. It it also details the making of reports. It details also the right of interested persons to seek second and other opinions on the cause of death. The act has given legal powers to the coroner. Uh, for the control and the disposal of the bodies of the deceased persons in reportable cases. And as earlier noted, when reportable death is a result of the commission as an offence, the power of of control of the body of the coroner is regardless of faith or culture of the deceased. This addresses another gap in cases where uh, maybe Hussein, Hussein will testify to this as well, and all of us also have been witnesses, where in the Muslim faith, there's the requirement to bury on the same day. And this has denied families the opportunity for quality and professional forensic medical documentation and investigations. It will also address a situation on the ground where a good number of cases, the police conceal evidence and pressure families to hurriedly bury the bodies without conclusive forensic documentation. Now, Imlu Imlu in 2014 was tasked with, uh, had an interesting case of a 14-year-old Kweke Mwandaza. Maybe I'll I'll, I'll do it aside and mention. Kweke Mwandaza was a case we handled in 2014 in Kuala, and the the victim was buried hurriedly. Uh, There was a lot of pressure from, from the police. But IMLU, with its network of pathologists, took an application and secured a court order, which allowed us to exhume the body and carry out a proper postmortem. And it's through this process that we were able to, which led to trial, and we were able to get the people who were involved tried in court, and they are currently serving seven years in jail for, uh, after, after, a guilty, after a guilty outcome on their case. And so IMLU has, IMLU has and continues to, to, to interact with some, some of these cases where the police are the are suspected to be the are suspected to be involved in cases, and families report to us, and within no time before we have even mobilized and and had our pathologists on board, the family has been pressurized, and the, the bodies have been buried, and we have lost a lot of cases, we have lost a lot of evidence, and we have lost a lot of time in regards to bringing justice to some of these victims, and so. IMLU's role continues to be to advocate for the implementation of this act. As a medical doctor, my my contribution is not going my contribution and, and even the, the, the acts I have cited are just as a layman, a layman understanding of the act. I am looking forward to this discussion. I'm looking forward to the lawyers, the lawyers on board to give us a better view of the act, to look at the act and look at some of these sections, some of these, some of these loopholes, which which may be the hindrance in regards to setting up of the act itself. We're looking forward to seeing that the, the offices that are involved, we're looking forward to hearing from Dr. Dor, who is working from the Minister of Health, hear what he has been doing in regards to this, because uh, he has been involved in some of the work that he has been doing. We want to hear from him. We want to hear from the office of the government. We want to hear from other lawyers as well, because recently we also had lawyers coming in and saying that they, they, they think, in their opinion, that the coroner the the general should be a lawyer. That's something, again, you see, we with this fighting in between us, we are, we are losing track of, of, of the big ball. And so I hand it over to you uh, with a lot of gratitude. I uh, thank you for everyone else who has had a chance to, to interact with this law. I'm looking forward to us looking at the nitty gritties of it, and hopefully at the end of it, we'll be able to come up with a, a way forward in regards to the, way, the next steps. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Madam Moderator.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Bishanga. I think you've been able to situate um, the reasons why there was a need for this law. And um, speaking as you do, I think it really resonates, uh, particularly when you talk about uh, the demise of um, the gentleman in kwale and the understanding that with your office and the insistence that the body is exhumed, that there is a chance to now get evidence that is there. And my layperson's understanding is that with this office in place, we actually are able to preserve a scene better, but also there is some kind of operationalized system in which deaths and the dead are handled. So that at the end, with the issues that actually bring on police brutality or questions on police involvement, it's a win-win, It's everybody happier. So, I think at this point, it, it just makes sense to bring in Ipoa because um, we do not have the IG or his representatives here, but we do have Ipoa because Ipoa, that is their task. It is the oversight. So, if I could have you, um, Mr. Kirio Kinderito, just come in at this stage to do your pitch and to help elucidate uh, what actually informed this act, uh, what is the memory? that actually exists in of this act, because it's been three years and you're functioning without it. Is there a need? Is there no need? Um, if Honorable Waganja was here, that would have been fantastic because him having been in parliament at the time that it was being enacted and being part of the push to make it an act um, would have been great. But if you are able to speak to what happens when MPs pass laws and, and they just seem to be shelved, does an oversight also include questioning the executive over the implementation of such laws? Because why are they passed if they're not implemented? I would <coughs> love to hear you put this all into light and anything else that you believe is so important from your office for us. You know, Karibu, Mr. nderitu
1: Thank you very much, uh, data Again, I'm happy to be in this uh, discussion today. Let me start by saying this the history of the relationship between citizens uh, of this country and the police has not been very healthy because in historical context, the police as we know it today is more of a, a colonial legacy. Our traditional in our traditional setups across this country, uh, people had their own way of settling disputes. Uh, I like giving this example, for example, among the Kikuyus, uh, that if somebody uh, committed a very serious offense or a heinous act, sometimes they would be put in a, in a beehive full of bees, and they rode down the hill. Uh, that was a very serious punishment. But with the advent of uh, colonialism, of course, and capitalism for that matter, the idea of uh, an organized law enforcement uh, institution was imported uh, from the UK into Africa and the third world generally. And therefore, the citizens of Kenya have always viewed the police as part of the oppressor, if you allow me to use that word, the protector of those in the authority, those in the power, those who have the means. And therefore, The majority, of course, being not people of means, have always had this suspicion uh, into the operations of the police. The police, of course, the National Police Service as we know it today, has probably not done very well uh, to redeem uh, that image, even with the motto to Miss equal And uh, as such, when uh, we were uh, formulating uh, the constitution in 2010, and before that, with the commissions that had been formed, the, Ran- the Lansley Task Force, for example, uh, the Waki Report and all the others recommended that we needed uh, a civilian body to oversight the police. And therefore, came the moment uh, for the constitution to be promulgated in 2010, Article 244 of the Constitution provides that uh, we need a professionalized and disciplined national police service. And it is based on that article that uh, the Independent Policing Oversight Authority Act, uh, number 35 of 2011, uh, was uh, enacted. And uh, of course, one of the things that it did was to create this authority, this civilian body, called AIPWA to oversight the police. Now, as I said earlier on, at the introduction, one of the major, in fact, the major task for AIPWA is to, of course, over and above professionalizing and ensuring that uh, our members of the National Police Service are professional and disciplined, is to ensure that any misconduct by the police is investigated and action taken. Now, the act gives uh, uh, the authority, that is IPOA, the power, to investigate the criminal conduct of police. And of course, as I said earlier alone Where the conduct is of such nature as probably not to amount uh, to criminal behavior, we have other avenues of resolving the same. Uh, We have uh, the commission, the National Police Service Commission, and therefore in most cases I probably make reference uh, to National Police Service Commission. We have the Internal Affairs Unit, which is an internal mechanism uh, to to, to discipline the police and also the IG is the boss, is the prefect, and therefore we make reference. However, where the conduct is criminal, and particularly I want to address the issue of killings, which probably forms the bulk of what we are going to discuss in the, this forum, IPO has an obligation to investigate and make the appropriate recommendations for review by the DPP, and then the appropriate action is taken. Now, to come home, one of the biggest challenges we have had in investigating these deaths is, of course, having uh, post-mortems carried out and reports released on time or in time. And availability of adequate services, uh, including the human capital, trained uh, pathologists and others, so that they can be able to, to investigate that aspect, who, what caused the death. You know, and prepare a report so that IPO can rely on that report to make appropriate uh, recommendation to the DPP. Of course, when put together with all the other evidence, eyewitnesses and the like, so that we can have prosecutable cases and hold uh, whoever is whoever uh, whoever is, uh, is uh, culpable to account. And therefore, my understanding of why the National Corona Service Act came into into being is so that that gap may be addressed. And we, in the history of this country, we have had so many mandates that were, have been unresolved for the longest time. I, I do not want to mention them. Some of them are political. Uh, some of them uh, are probably hinge on, uh, on what I would call national security. Uh, and therefore, the state, so to say, uh, would probably not not appear to be very dependent, so to say, as far as those investigations are concerned. And therefore, I would take it that whoever came out with the National Corona Service Act had that in mind, that we need this semi-autonomous body, if you may, that can be able to deal with this issue. Because, and uh, I started guided uh, by uh, by uh, my good friend, uh, Dr. Johansson, when Dr. Johansson and his team are part of the Ministry of Health, and therefore, of course, employees of the Ministry of Health. They may not, they may not, I'm, so, I'm not saying they, have, they haven't, they may not be able to perform as efficiently and effectively as they would have done had they been independent. Of course, this question of uh, how independent uh, uh, depends on so many interpretations. Of course, the National Colonial Service is something that will be funded by the public. But look at even uh, the appointment. For example, the coroner general, he has security of 10 under the Act. That is uh, section, uh, uh, Section 19. Uh, and therefore, the intention, that is Section 9, and also again in Section 19, the intention, therefore, is to have this body that can be able to investigate these murders or these deaths and give uh, what I would call an independent and objective report that would help the police and also help Ipoa in, in executing our mandate to ensure that whatever is presented to the DPP and therefore to court is the correct position in terms of the identity, the cause, and the nature of the death uh, that, uh, that has been occasioned. Uh, And therefore, this uh, this would have been a very welcome move. And unfortunately, uh, as uh, it has been said, uh, the operationalization of the Act has been the issue, the implementation, uh, because I can see this Act was assented uh, by his excellency on 21st June 2017. It was supposed to commence, to come into operation on 7th July 2017. uh, And now we are in 2020, July, so we have uh, a lapse of about three years that we have lost. Uh, Of course, there are many reasons. There could be many reasons why the Act has not been operationalized. Of course, we have uh, budgetary constraints. We we all know uh, that uh, we shall never have enough resources. Uh, However, I feel constrained to state that uh, I think we have not been very keen, for whatever reason, probably beyond what I may know to have this act uh, operationalized and, uh, and uh, start functioning. Uh, you see, we have uh, a number of uh, provisions that I would want to mention in passing. Kind uh, stopped really stop me if my 10 minutes elapse. But for example, I've looked, I've gone through this act and the, uh, the speaker, uh, the contributor, uh, who did it before before, before I, uh, I came into, uh, into making my contribution, said he's not a lawyer and he expected some lawyers to shed some light. For example, I've looked at the divinations and I noted an interested person. Who is this person who can, for example, approach the corona so that, uh, so that a death may be investigated and therefore a report made? And the divination given to the interested person is so wide that it gives powers and room for every Kenyan, every citizen, whether corporate or individual the mandate and the power to approach the corona and say we need this death investigated ipo of course in fact it talks about relatives it talks about the children it talks about beneficiaries including even insurance companies if insurance companies had insured my life and the life is lost they become they are covered uh, under an interested person and they can approach corona to have uh, the death investigated so national corona service It's a very welcome idea, a very good idea. However, the implementation would be the problem. And I've probably mentioned uh, budgetary issues uh, because i don't believe that uh, probably we have shortage of uh, of uh, human capital uh, people who can be able to uh, to take positions in this body and and, and and run with it and do what it is supposed to do uh, you said there, uh, there is uh, somebody of course from uh, uh, from the office of the attorney general i can see the cabinet secretary uh, who is supposed to make sure or to ensure that this act is implemented it talks about uh, the cabinet secretary for the time being, responsible for matters relating to justice. In our constitutional and legal setup uh, of the state, uh, I would take that. That means the attorney general. And uh, probably the officer from the Attorney General uh, would probably uh, place us in a better position as to why this has not uh, has not happened. But I think Ipo would uh, benefit from where I start greatly if this body was actually incorporated and the act implemented, because we would stop bothering Johanesen, <laughs> Johannes, Dr. Johannes and his team every now and then. Uh, calling them, telling them there is a post-mortem we want you to carry at the city mostly. By then, the tally tells me he is in his room or elsewhere. So if we had this body that has been mandated to do this and solely to do so, and having the capacity to employ as many number of people as they would require, of course, subject to budgetary provisions, I think it is be a very welcome move. But uh, Section 9 of of, uh, the Corona General, as it has been said, and I don't want probably to convert this into into a law class, the intention is to investigate every suspicious killing or homicide. Anywhere where somebody feels that uh, there is a question mark, how did this person die? Could somebody uh, be held uh, culpable for this? Then this act is very, very applicable. We know, of course, Uh, from Harid and his team. The major concern we have in this country as far as deaths are concerned is killings by the police. And, and uh, sometimes I get a little bit uneasy when I talk about this, because uh, we have officers, we have taken officers to court. Uh, one of our contributors earlier mentioned the Kwekwe Kwe Mwandasa case. I was, uh, unfortunately, I prosecuted that matter with uh, with uh, Michael, my my senior in prosecution, uh, Mr. Muteti, And those officers were subsequently convicted and sentenced. Many others have followed. Many others have followed. you know Katitu of You know, Know the OCS uh Casalani police station and many others they have been convicted. There are some of them have been sentenced to death. However, the unfortunate the tragedy about it is that it doesn't appear to stop. Of course, this body, the National Corona Service, would save us time, lapse of time, whereby probably. Time is lost because we are not able to perform as many postmortems as we would. Probably the manner of preparation of other postmortems, this body being dedicated just to do that and being an autonomous body, I know that team would come up with an even better templates or preparing these documents so that once they are presented to court, they are of course uh, easy to understand by the court, the prosecution and the and the defense lawyers. And they, of course, uh, cases can, uh, can move. I also take it that uh, this, of course, this This this, uh, National Corona Service body could also help the courts uh, in, uh, of course, uh, having the cases concluded uh, as soon as possible. Because this being a body, uh, a body corporate uh, with officers employed just to do that, there would be no reasons as to why uh, the corona has not sent uh, somebody to present uh, the necessary evidence in the court uh, and so forth. But I want to mention that. uh, something that I came across under this at another uh, section 68, section 68 that talks about National Coronas Cancer. National Coronas Cancer is a body that is supposed to formulate to help the corona general come up with uh, policies, uh, guidelines, etc, etc. And one of uh, the omissions that I saw, if you allow me, moderator, it, it says this. There is, yeah, minute, cancer, and... thank you. there is established a cancer to be known as the National Coronas uh, cancel and cancer, as I have said. Then there is a permanent secretary, coronial services, principal secretary justice, principal secretary, treasury inspector general. But IPO is left out. You can't believe it. As important as IPO is, in my opinion, in investigating, particularly murders or deaths caused by the police, IPO is left out. It's a glaring omission. But of course, the effect of law comes to be known when we start implementing and operationalizing it. Maybe that glaring uh, uh, omission will be discovered once we start to implement. And uh, There are so many things we can say about this act, but in a nutshell, a uh, moderator, I would want to say that for now.
0: You've done a fantastic job. Thank you so much in, um, in such a short time trying to dissect what that law is, but also trying to see what the nexus is between that law and your office. And, and I think my takeaway from your presentation is that this act is going to help in accountability. It is going to ensure the integrity of the kind of work you do and what your authority is there for. Um, and there's efficiency, and efficiency is everything, particularly when it comes to issues where there has been a killing of any sort. So efficiency of time, efficiency for the courts, but we still have this question, then why isn't there? if it is such a great, amazing act that was set up and it's supposed to be this really helpful tool for everybody? and I'm seeing that there will be a benefit across the board. I think I'll take your lead and I'll go straight to the AG office and uh, Ms. Treir. Uh, you were mentioned, but I think this is the the, the perfect segue into looking at the Attorney General's office, and, and probably trying to speak to us in, in understanding why this act has not yet been implemented three years on. Um, why is there no budget for it? The budget came up, uh, and and the budgetary issues, of course, uh, are key, like Mr. kariuki said, and that would be to man the office, but the fact that there is no office. What are the factors that actually inform the implementation from your aspect of things, because you at the Attorney General and the Ministry of Justice was there on the table. And you might even speak to what Dr. Bishanga asked about the Ministry of Justice and its function as well, and how it actually fits into this larger agenda of making sure that people are represented at any given time, and justice is not just seen to be served, but it is served. So over to you, Ms. Chair. Uh,
2: Thank you so much, Chair. Now, um, the implementation of the Act has been, has faced some challenges over the years. Before even moving very far, I'd want to say as soon as it was passed, the Office of the AG, the Attorney General, as it then was, Gidhu uh, Mugai, received submissions from different corners, including uh, Ministry of Defence, Ministry of uh, Interior Health, that the Act should be amended to ensure that the lead agency is the cabinet secretary in charge of health. So at that point, there was about a few minute meetings, there was um, discussions, and the, Gidu himself felt that the matter of the coroner is a matter of justice, really, not a matter of health. It's more a matter of justice. And in fact, in some jurisdictions, you'll find that it's under the judiciary. So after he succeeded in that matter, we started the uh, operationalization of the act. We, try, we started to start the process of implementing. As uh, we note in the act, the act itself sets up the National Coroner Service as a body corporate, a parastatal to, a parastatal to conduct um, independent investigations into reported deaths in order to remove uh, incidences or perceptions of bias or conflict of interest. The act itself provides that the cabinet secretary in charge of justice is the designated ministerial authority with regard to the implementation of the the act. Now, uh, Chair, I want to just give a short background on government structures, ministerial structures, organizations, so for a better understanding of of what I'm going to say next. So, uh, and uh, parastatals, independent commissions, SAGAs, all work under the auspices of specific ministries. These ministries have authority or um, powers with regard to perhaps cabinet representative representation because you're not, some of these parastatos or sagas, they do not sit in cabinet, so they cannot uh, discuss their issues there. So there must be a minister who will deal with that. The minister will be in charge of maybe national policy oversight, will be in charge of triggering the establishment of that organisations in the first organisation in the first place, or even recruitment. Now, um, just to give an example, you'll find, like, for example, the Kenya pipeline, Parastatal is under the auspices of the Ministry of Energy. You'll find that Kenya OS is under the Ministry of um, Ministry of Transport. And also in this regard, the National coroner Service is under the Ministry, which should be under the Cabinet Secretary in Charge of Justice. Now we had a Ministry of Justice, National Cohesion and Constitutional Affairs who dealt with the issues of justice, human rights, law reform. But in 2013, after the first the ele- general elections under the Constitution, the Ministry of Justice, the mandate was merged with the Office of the AG. And the AG took over the issues of justice. So after, it, in fact, for some time, we were, the Office of the AG was implementing almost 40 pieces of legislation, almost 40 uh, parastatals, Independent commissions, the Kenya National Commission on Human Rights, the Kenya Law Reform Commission, he was dealing with that kind of work. But at some point in 2017, a case was instituted in the High Court, whereby the High Court um, ruled that the AG is not a cabinet secretary in line with the Constitution. I will not go into the merits and demerits of that case, but the the outcome was that the AG became paralyzed. He could not now deal with any of these acts. And you know, the National Coroners Act clearly provides it's the cabinet, secretary, in charge of justice. But the um, court was uh, mindful of that vacuum it was created. So it, the AG was directed to try and rectify the situation as soon as possible. So the AG tried to appeal the matter. The appeal is still ongoing. But we thought that the most important thing would be to introduce an amendment to this act so that uh, we can include the attorney general in the in the, in the implementation of the Act, the amendment was prepared by the Office of the AG, Cabinet approved, and it went to Parliament. But then Parliament decided, said that this raises very huge constitutional issues. We need time to deal with it. So they shelved the matter, and I think they were going for the election, so shelved the matter and proceeded for elections. So after they came back, we, it had, it, we had to start the amendment afresh. So we, of course, had to draft it afresh, take it back to cabinet. And of course, time is moving. Time is passing. So at some point, what helped us in this matter, we got a kind of reprieve, is that in 2018, 2019, another fresh case was instituted in court, whereby the high court um, gave conservatory orders that ministries, certain ministries should not continue managing the implementation of certain laws because they... It was felt that it was not constitutional right. There was a problem there. But then what uh, the relief the office of the AG got was that the court said we exempt the office of the attorney general because of the legal and justice vacuum that would be created by stopping the AG from dealing with some of this matter. So immediately after the court said that, the AG rushed and came up and established an implementation committee on the establishment of the National Coroners Act. The committee is drawing, has drawn its members from various um, relevant uh, organizations, including the Ministry of Health, the Ministry of Public Service, State Department of Public Service, Public Service Commission. We have, I think, IPOA. No, no, we don't have IPOA. And of course, the Office of the Attorney General, who are now have the terms of re- reference of setting up the organization structure and the human rights framework, human resource framework for the establishment of that service. They are also supposed to come up with a budget, prepare the budget seek um, national treasury approval and funding and also come up with the terms and services of the corona, the coroner general and the corona himse- themselves in consultation with uh, the salary and remuneration um, commission so the, the this is at the point that we are in right now the committee has been set up it's doing its work we are now doing this um these frameworks and structures but as you know these things take time. You can't do it in a day. It takes time. And uh, I've had several um, uh, panelists talk about the budget. That the budget, there's no budget. The problem is we had not set up the budget before in this in the 2021 uh, budget uh, location. But we there is a supplementary budget that's coming up. So the committee has been urged to fast track this issue so that when the supplementary budget comes up in, I think in September. All the documents will be ready for presentation to, for the, for, for, to be included in the budget. So what I want to say is that uh, the AG is very, very eager for this service to be established. But because of that um, constitutional issue, the problem of the court uh, uh, um, ruling, matters have delayed. It, it has taken three years. And, you know, you see like three years is a long time, but the wheels of government normally move very, very slowly. So even uh, the appeal has taken time. Up to now, it has not been heard. And of course, the um, the discussions of the of that uh, amendment by Parliament has also taken time. So, but now I think we are on the right track. We are uh, we've come up with all this, the the establishment necessary, the the human resource index necessary, and I think now we are on the right track. And in, uh, in the next six seven months, we should have moved very very far with regard to the setting up of that coroner's uh, service of the corona service. I think that's what I, I can say for now. That is the challenges, challenges that we've had, but we are moving forward with regard to addressing that challenge. Uh, thank you.
0: Thank you very much. So, Ms. Chair, you've, you, you've been able to you know position the AG office, and I think you've done a good job getting them off the hook to a certain extent, but I, I will wait to see what goes on out there. You 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 put in good defence. I'm not in the legal business, but I'm sure those who are, Mr. Dirito and Mr. Karanja, will be able to assess just how well you've done. And I was actually going to go up uh, to Dr. Dwar, but I think uh, Dr. Dwar, if you allow me, I think I'll, I'll bring in this whole legal team together. Let them sit in one place, and 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 let us digest all the legal material before we come to your very specific expert space, because yours is, is, is very specific, very professional, and, and it stands alone pretty much as comes this office of the coroners, because those will be your colleagues anyway, and you're well known to each other in the field. So, um, Mr. Kar- you know, Karanja, I think this will be uh, a wonderful place for you to come in. To answer and uh, give any rebuttal to to what Ms. Chair said. Um, But I think the only comment I'll put out there from where I stand and from what I hear and what I know, even in the human rights work that I do, is the question of time. Um, As much as we understand that there's a lot of bureaucracy and there's a lot of red tape, this this is a a matter of literally life and death. These are matters for the families who have lost loved ones even in this COVID period, which has been a very difficult one for the police. And I'm sure Ipoa, you know, Mr. Ndirito must be inundated with um, sort of work and appeals and, and, and it, it just has been very untidy. And it has been untidy around the world. But we are getting to a place where people are tired.